The material provided today is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a financial professional for your own needs. Johnny Sestina and Company disclaims any and all liability for the interpretation and use of the content provided today. I need help getting out of my student loan I'm debt. so worried. How am I going to afford taking care of my When's parents? When's a good time to get into the market? I'm really not sure when I should start taking my Social Security. I wonder if I have enough insurance. I wonder when I can retire. It's time to talk about your money. Managing to be wealthy. Our team of fee-only financial planners is ready to help you to create better financial habits. Envision your long-term goals and understand money management better than ever. Our resident hosts of Johnny, Sestina, and Company are on deck to show you the way. Welcome to Managing to Be Wealthy. For tonight's episode, I'm your host, Spencer Hager. With me, Tony Payne. Both of us are certified financial planners. Should have a really fun show. A couple of current events as well as a lot of conversation on building generational wealth. But, uh, Tony, since it's the two of us, I'll take a little bit extra time. How are you doing? Oh, it's a wonderful day, man. I'm getting over a little something here and starting to feel a little better. The sun's coming out slowly. You know, it's a great day to talk financial planning. There you go. <laughs> yeah, standard response. Hopefully the uh, hopefully the sun burns it out. I've talked to a lot of people that are feeling a little bit sick and a little under the weather, so I'm hoping when the weather gets into the 80s and pretty consistent, it'll hopefully take care of that. Uh, I'm hoping so. A little dry air will help, I hope. So all is well, though. You know me. I, you said it's standard response, but, man, I mean it. It's always a good day for financial planning. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Keep it and positive. that's what we're here for. Absolutely. So we'll get right into it. So first thing I wanted to talk about tonight as far as current events, I've had a lot of people reaching out to me about this. Tony, I'm sure you have. Uh, I-bonds. So I-bonds being a hedge against inflation. So I guess, Tony, I'll be honest, this is probably the first time that I've dealt with it coming back up with a lot of people reaching out to me. Is this a good idea? Have you had people reach out to you in your career before this? Like, has there been a previous resurgence? It's been many moons, many, <laughs> many moons since the days of the 90s when inflation was a thing. And these were and even double E bonds and some of the other Treasury bonds that are out there were really a bit more exciting and you heard about them more. And then with the last 10, almost 20 years of very low historical interest rates, a really good stock market, it seemed that they kind of faded from view a little bit. So I, I'm glad we're talking about it, Spencer. You brought this topic to us today, and we're going to debunk a couple myths out there and really shine the light on what these things are. Yeah, and so when it comes to I-bonds, I'll give a quick explanation So, and why I think it's become such a hot topic. So I-bonds – there's supposed to be that hedge against inflation, and what really got people talking about it, it's no secret at this point, inflation's taken off. Right? If, even if you're just looking at the consumer price index, the CPI, right, it's 7% climbing. And so what happened was with these I-bonds, you can buy 10000 per year, and for November 2021, they started issuing these bonds saying you can get up to a 7% plus annual interest rate. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, 7% sounds awesome, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. So the first thing I always point out with these, so like I said, I think a lot of people at first just think you could dump a huge sum of money. Not to say the 10000 is a small dollar amount, but a lot of people, it seems like they want to put you know, $50,000, $100,000 into the I-bonds. Like I said, first thing where you have to sell your role is this is only up to 10000 per year. The other piece is they pitch it with that nice intro 7% rate. That is, it, it fluctuates every six months. It's not going to stay the same. The other part to that too, Spencer, and I hear you with that is, 
you also can use your tax refund mm-hmm. to buy up to another 5000 Yep. So like you're saying, we're limited at most maybe 15000 per taxpayer. Yep, absolutely. The other piece, and so like I said, this was my first time really going through it because before they, they just really didn't look that attractive. So it's pretty mm-hmm. easy. You can go on. You can look at what the historical rates used to be, and there's some pretty – big examples of when the rate was really, really attractive, and then all of a sudden it just fell off a cliff. It's like, so like, <laughs> what kind of example, Spencer? Can yeah, you put yeah. some numbers to it? Okay, so May 08 to November 08, the rate went from 5.64%, also pretty good. I take that rate. It went down to zero. So Zero? Zero. Not even a 0.5 or a 0.4, just flat zero. Very interesting, Spencer. It's good that you're pointing that out for those who might be hearing about them now at that exciting 7%. Yeah, and for some people who think maybe I'm just trying to cherry pick and do a one-off, like another example, November of 2014 to May of 2015, it went from 1.5% to 0%. Um, November 15 to May 16 went from 1.7% to 0.2%. So once again, not pointing it out to say, you know, at the end of the day, it is a safe investment, but you just have to be mindful that it's not like it's a 7% each year for 10 years. And so if inflation kicks down, you get to keep that lovely 7% interest rate. It does change. And also, you do have to hold it for up to five years to avoid having some of that interest you got to accrue being penalized or essentially taken back, meaning you can't buy an I-bond, hold it for a year, get the interest, turn around and sell it without having some sort of penalty in the play. Right. And if I'm in the fine print there, Spencer, I think we even have to hold them for a whole year mm-hmm. before we could even sell them yep. just for normal liquidity. Exactly. So this this is definitely something that may have a piece in your overall puzzle. But like you're saying, Spencer, it's not something that we think we can move large amounts of money into, nor do I think we might want to as a reaction. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's just another reminder. I had to do it myself. Second, someone brought this up to me and said, hey, I saw I-bonds guaranteed 7% rate of return. If I hear a guaranteed 7%, I know there's got to be some but in the picture. And so same deal. Not saying they're a horrible tool or a bad investment by any means, but just know it's definitely being dressed up a little bit. So just know the kickbacks with it. Yep. And maybe one other point that we didn't mention is taxes. Yep. I know, Spencer, you're a big fan of Uncle Sam here. Uh, how are these I-bonds taxed? Yeah, exactly right. It's um, You don't have to pay on the state and local, correct, but they still get you on the federal? Am I remembering you that? You got it. You got it. Yes, sir. You're on it. Yep. So they're mostly tax-exempt. Mm-hmm. I mean, mostly, which is neat. We like that, too. Yeah. These are small <laughs> yeah. benefits. Exactly. I remember one of the first things that my grandmother gave me was a double E savings bond. I mean, man, that thing had quite an interest rate, Spencer. I was going through just looking historically. I think it was almost 7.5%. I mean, when she was thinking of saving for college, that was an almost guaranteed 7%. That's a great tool. And it used to be, especially before the prevalence of 529 plans, people would use these bonds for college savings in a lot of different ways, and there may still be uses for that. We kind of think the 529 may have uh, be an even better tool, but I know that there's some out there that still hold these just for college. Yep. Really neat. Really yeah. neat thing that we're talking about here. Absolutely. So if you hear someone talking about I-bonds, hopefully you know a little bit more about it now, but definitely interesting to see the resurgence. 
Uh, the other big one, and we're probably going to bleed into the next segment a little bit with this, is uh, Tony, did you see that now in some 401ks that uh, Bitcoin could be an investment? Did you see that? <laughs> I saw it. I might not have liked it, but I saw it, Spencer. Um, right, a- It's so funny. Right after the Department of Labor issued a warning almost saying, don't do this, yeah. uh, one of the big custodians decided to go ahead and do it, which is interesting. Again, no judgments there. Let business do what business does, but just very interesting because we know it's such a volatile asset. So let me ask you this, Tony. I haven't had someone ask me this yet, but I just know someone will. Do you think that some 401ks letting in Bitcoin, what do you think about the argument that that, that legitimizes it that much more and that it's here to stay and that it's a quality asset? What do you think? I don't – I just – honestly, Spencer, I just can't go along maybe yeah. because I've seen a few cycles where something because of its return is all the rage. You know, commodities back in 06 and 07 with grain and corn and oil, or then the other booms that have been out there and bust. So just because something's taken a lot of space in the news or it's had a big return, I just don't know that that means it's really going to be a new investment class that really takes over. It may. I'm, I'm not saying it's not. I'm not as educated on all this as some of the experts. We know that we're still learning here, but as fiduciaries, I can say this, Spencer, the stocks in the S&P 500 have only dropped 10% uh, in a day about five times in the last 50 years. Bitcoin's had it happen five times in the last one year. So whether or not it's going to be the future or whether it should be in all 401ks, the numbers just say it's really volatile. So for long-term investing, you've really got to be able to stick with it. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So we're going to wrap up this topic and get into the bulk of the rest of the show in the next segment here. Please stick around. You're listening to Managing to Be Wealthy on 610 WTVN. You're listening to Managing to Be Wealthy with fee-only financial planners of Johnny, Sestina, and company. If you're looking for the latest stock tip or how to time the market, you've come to the wrong place. If you want help navigating all the moving pieces of what makes a financial plan successful, tune in and take notes. Welcome back to Managing to Be Wealthy. First segment, we were talking a lot about current events. We're going to wrap up the second one we were on, which is about Bitcoin potentially being an investment option in 401ks. And then we're going to move into the big topic tonight. It's going to be all about building generational wealth. There's a lot to unpack there, so it should be really interesting. But uh, Tony, end of the last segment, you were just talking about how, sure, right? I, I'm right there with you. I don't really feel comfortable speculating. And I, I, I kind yeah. of fence it on it, right? Because sometimes people ask me and I can tell they want me to really just give a harsh and rag on Bitcoin. I'm not necessarily willing to go that far. I'll point out the risks, but I'm also not going to say that, hey, just because it could be an option in your 401k, that means that it's the next greatest thing. Get in on on it while you can. I agree with you, Spencer. Again, we we can't have that kind of hubris to say we know the future and we can guarantee this is not a good thing. I I can't say that, but managing risk and looking at history and transparency, because there's still transparency issues with Bitcoin. I mean, there really are. We can talk about that on another show even. But then the other point, and this is the one I come down to, is if it is a currency, why are we paying a fee on it then? 
Because when you look at some of the fees in this 401k to hold Bitcoin, I mean, think about it. If it's a money market you're holding, you're not paying a fee on that money market. You're basically holding cash. But if you're holding this coin, now you're paying almost 0.7% of a fee. I mean, that, that also seems to eat into things a little bit where if it's really a coin, perhaps you own it somewhere else where you're not going to have that fee associated with it. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, so the other piece to say that is the big dog that brought in Bitcoin as an investment option. It was Fidelity. No 401k is the same with the investment options. So if you're listening to this and Fidelity manages your 401k, don't think that all of a sudden this is going to pop up tomorrow. There's still different investment options for each plan. And yeah, like Tony, to your point, if you're looking at your investment options and you see a, like a 500 index fund, the expense to own that's probably 0.05% or less, whereas right with the Bitcoin, it's 0.75.9%. So it's almost, you know, what, yeah, almost well over, you know, five times more expensive. So it's just be mindful of the expense too that eats into the return and, and be mindful. So good points, Spencer. Yep. Good points. So, all right. So moving into the main topic, because I think this is by far more interesting than Bitcoin being a 401k investment option. So I was reading through a couple articles recently. I saw a headline that popped up that said essentially uh, half of parents still financially support their adult children in one way or another. So definitely think that was meant to grab your eyes a little bit. I, I still think that's an important fact, but it, just to kind of identify the way they kind of address that is to say even if you're you know 22 years old or 20 years old and a parent pays half of your phone bill, anything when it comes to college funding, you know, auto insurance that's considered into this so pretty much any sort of financial support is how they're is how they're addressing this it's not saying that adult children are having their entire finances managed but i don't know half's a pretty big number it didn't shock me but it's a big number when well, think about the other things that this is saying too i mean we know that half of parents are not in a great financial position for their own retirement so if half of parents are supporting their adult children I think that kind of plays into the overall theme that people aren't as ready for retirement as they should be because the money or the assets or the energy that they should be dedicating towards their own plan, they're helping others, which, you know, in the heart of hearts and being a parent, that's got to feel good and that feels like the important thing. But we know it. If you don't have a good, stable background yourself, when those emergencies happen to you, then you're really going to be of no help to the kids. So, I, again, I think in this realm, you've got to make sure that you have your financial house in order. You and your spouse are good before you worry about the kids. You know, in many ways, I think the kids will find a way and figure it out. But there's there's hardly any redoing your retirement. Yeah, and what scares me a little bit when I read this, and maybe this is because I, you know, I am a financial planner, but – you know, the average they said that, that these parents are putting out for supporting their adult children, it's about a thousand per month, roughly. What scares me is thinking about a lot of those people are probably doing that, don't necessarily know what they should even need to be saving towards retirement, right? Maybe they haven't gone through and yeah. crunched the numbers to say, if I want to retire at 65, what's it going to take? And I almost think when I read this, that I bet a, the vast majority are just doing it and they're planning to, you know, look at what it takes to retire after that when. You know, arguably, you should know that before. Right. Well, and again, I think this spurs from something well-meaning. 
you know, and I hear it a lot. Oh, yeah. You know, you know how the world is now. You know how hard it is. You, and again, I, I, we do, but I don't think that's changing. And if you want these young people to get out and get good habits and learn their own way, they've got to sometimes have the hard path here. And that's how we usually get our experience, learn our lessons. So the younger we are that we make our mistakes, usually the quicker it is that we learn from them. Mm -hmm. And if we keep getting bailed out from those mistakes, well, then we're never going to really change. And when I sit with parents and we talk about that young person in their life, you know, we have to think about, well, what happens when mom and dad are older? You know, and I mean a lot older when you start to have a diminished capacity. You know, who's going to take care of those kids when you're not able to? If they're not in the right spot financially or they don't have the right mindset, you might leave them a nice inheritance or some assets or something, but there's nothing that says they can't blow right through that if they don't have good habits. So I think these are the points that when we're going through this, Spencer, I'm just, it's eating at me going, oh my, is this a ticking time bomb of kids who are just going to blow all this wealth transfer that's coming? Honestly, though, I mean, seriously, because I was looking at this too. This was a separate article. It was a Pew Research poll they did back in 2019. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it says in, in 2018... 24% 24% of young adults were financially independent by age 22 or younger. All right. Compare that to 38 years before in 1980, I was 32%. So it was an 8% drop, which is no small amount of people who all of a sudden used to be financially independent by that age can't make the cut. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What do you think's changed, Spencer? What do you think's causing that? I See, I don't know. Once again, I always kind of I sit on the fence a little bit. I mean, I have to think that college plays a big role. Right? I think a lot yeah. of – and that kind of ties into what what is generational wealth or what does it look like to build that, which I know we're going to get into. But I, I think that plays one part. I'm not trying to be the stickler who says, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but I do think Maybe it is something with the culture. Maybe it is just the common decisions that a lot of you know young adults make now, where it's just also driving up expenses where they need that. That makes some sense, though, Spencer. Cost of living's up, and I yep. don't mean by inflation. I mean our standards. Yeah. You know, when I went to a dorm room and visited a college not too long ago, I thought I was in a luxury apartment. <laughs> I mean, these things are sweet, man. And I want to go back to college. This stuff looks – and again, and I think what you're saying, though, you think about the debt that's incurred, the costs that go along with that. Maybe you have a vehicle then or you're trying to go on trips and have a social life. I mean, again, things that we might have said, deal with it, figure it out 10, 20, 30 years ago. Now I think we're just a little bit more aware, accepting of some of these other things. And, again, we have to balance it out. The idea that these kids are – well, they're in school now. They have sports now. They're trying to find their way. That's never going to change. So as much as we want to help our young people, in my experience, the best way to help them is guidance on how to balance time. You're still going to have to work. You're going to have to have a social life. You're going to have to figure out what what kind of lifestyle can you afford. And and not everyone can afford the same lifestyle, and that's just the way it is, it seems. Yep, absolutely. So, well, that's the problem. When you uh, come back for the next two segments, we're going to talk about some strategies, maybe better ways to build financial wealth uh, throughout the generations. So stick around. You're listening to Managing Managing to be Wealthy on 610 WTVN. Welcome back to Managing to be Wealthy. Last segment, we wrapped up talking about 
little bit of the problem or what we identified as a problem with maybe starting off on the wrong foot when it comes to building generational wealth. Now we're going to talk about common questions, uh, strategies for building generational wealth and whatnot. But before we jump into that, as you're listening, uh, as always, if you want to listen to other podcasts, shows we've done in the past, you can go to our website, managingtobewealthy.com. Uh, go up to the top right, and it's the archive section. Also, if you want to set up a complimentary consultation meeting, happy to do so. You can either go to the website as well, click on Take Action up in the top right corner, or you can call our call our office at 614-326-3077. And we're always happy to sit down, go through your situation, give you an hour plus of our time, and just see what we can do to help. But Tony, we talked about the problem. Now I'm kind of thinking of some common questions I've gotten on this. In my experience, and you can tell me if you've had something different, I think most people either have kind of two thoughts with building generational wealth. Either they think of the uber wealthy who are just passing down you know, millions and billions of dollars. I think others immediately think of trying to set their kids up to get out of college or turn 19 and have no debt and be in a good situation. Have you had any kind of different experience when you think about people talking to you about generational wealth? Aside from the ones you mentioned, I mean, the obvious one is when we're talking about a family business or an enterprise Mm -hmm. that has spanned generations, I mean, that one gets really tricky. And that's usually where we're talking about some of the higher net worth out there, Mm -hmm. um, just given the success over many years of a business. And like you said, the other side, too, of Honestly, just not even talking financial assets for the next generation, but financial education, financial values. Mm-hmm. You know, I've heard a lot more people lately say, I don't I don't want to leave my kids a ton of money. I want to leave them with a good path, a decent life where they can go out and find their own way, but I don't want to spoil it for them. And, you know, I feel like I'm hearing that more and more for the first time. Yeah, you know what I feel like I've heard a lot more for the first time too is – I think a lot of people are starting to question the whole college side of things. I, I just talked to yeah. a, I talked to a lot of people, and I think it's just because how expensive it is. You know, if your child or grandchild wants to wants to go to a four year school, live in a a dorm or hotel suite like you defined it, uh, Tony. Oh yeah. Right. I think a lot of people see how fast it's going up, and they start asking themselves, you know, do I want to put a bunch of money into a five twenty nine account to save for their college or would I rather just do it in some sort of other outside account, let them do what they want with it, maybe a house down payment in the future? So I just am hearing that a lot more recently. So Yeah, yeah. And it's I mean, it makes sense though. I know especially with our professionals and our doctors that we work with, I've heard of a lot where they're not trying to steer their children into medicine or law. You know, the idea of let them start a business or think like entrepreneurs get that earlier start and maybe that same money that would have been used for college can be used a different way. Again, each family is different and how you think of your values and where education lies in your house is really important. I do think there's a ton of merits in the 529 though that we'll talk about. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, So before we jump to that, I want to touch on the other outside accounts though. Uh, So Uh, two big ones that a lot of people have probably heard, or if you're starting to dig into this topic, you'll find out about them quickly, called UGMAs and UTMAs, U-G-M-A or U-T-M-A, essentially custodial brokerage accounts where you can set up investment accounts for your children. You get to control the reins while they're under the age majority, which varies a little bit by each state. 
And then when they reach that age of majority, it becomes their account. They get to do with it what they want. It's a little bit different from the 529. Um, Tony, I know how I feel about it. Do you generally kind of shy away from those? Is it situational? What do you What do you think? I was going to blurt out I hate them, but that's a strong <laughs> word. That's a strong phrase. Um, I, I, it really depends. I mean, again, if you're doing the right stuff along the way and the children are aware and they have their heads on, and even if they have their heads on, sometimes it's real easy to unscrew a 22-year-old's head. So, I mean, I, I just get nervous about these account types because, like you said, Spencer, when they hit the age of majority, the money's theirs. And I am a huge fan of control and golden handcuffs and strings and puppeteering, you know, whatever euphemisms you want to use. But mm-hmm. I love that idea of, hey, if you don't do what we say, we might be able to pull this away or go a different direction. But, you know, having that 22-year-old have access to large funds that really they can use however they want is a little scary sometimes, I think. Yeah, I think that's fair. It it tends to, it tends to turn me off a little bit as well generally. Um, I just don't like the idea. I think it's a well-intentioned tool, and I completely support people who don't necessarily know if they want to lock up a bunch of money that's just for college. But, um, yeah, it makes me worry, very worry. And I'll say this, too. I mean, I I don't know. I feel like I came in the industry at an interesting point where everything became documented and it it switched to emails from phone calls more. But I think in the old days there might have been more of a wink and a nod that, hey, we'll still listen to mom and dad. But on this kind of thing, especially now with, I mean, the children are adults. They're not children anymore. So you're dealing as a professional, you know, if it's the bank, for instance, and that child goes in there, they're not the child anymore of John Smith. They're they're John Smith Jr. They can do whatever they want. They're a customer, and they could sue the bank if they wanted. And that's where, again, the idea is they get all this privacy and control and you, the parents, are just an unrelated party at that point. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, let's um, let's talk about the the five twenty nines because the right we talked about some cons with the UGMAs, UGMAs. The main benefit is you're putting money in an investment account, not just cash for the next generation. But be mindful of the cons. With the five twenty nines, benefits generally are same concept. You can set aside money, invest it for your children's education, grandchildren's education. Let's go with the assumption, just to build out a mock scenario here, that it's for your child. You're setting aside for college. Depending on what state you live in, contributions could be tax deductible on the state side of things, which is good. And any growth on the money, assuming you spend it on qualified education expenses, uh, comes out tax-free, which is great. So here's what I'm going to put to you, Tony, before we come up on the next right. break. So if that's the case, you generally people say, the right, what if I don't spend money on the kid's education? An advisor or someone else would say, well, you could switch the beneficiary to a grandchild or someone like that. That way the money still can come out tax-free. Assume that that's out the window. Do you still think people should put money into a 529 if they're not sure if their kid's going to go to college? Hundred percent. Okay. Hundred percent. That opportunity cost of all those lost years of tax deferred growth and gains, you just can't get it back. I mean, it's it's the power of interest compounded. And again, the likelihood is young people are going to choose some path of education. And these five twenty nines aren't purely limited to a traditional four year school. So mm-hmm. try to speed speed that one up for you, Spencer. But that's my opinion. No, that's good. And you can also use it on things like. Assuming it's for education, things like laptops and, and you know other 
things you'll need for school. And I think the other piece I generally try and tell people is even if you think there's an inkling it's going to happen, maybe don't completely write off the idea of using a 529. Maybe if you're working with an advisor, you're spreadsheeting the cost yourself as far as what you think it's going to cost for your child to go to college. Maybe just lowball the contributions a little bit. Don't do the full amount if you're worried, but don't just write it off completely. But we'll uh, we'll wrap on this when we come back in the next segment. You're listening to Managing to Be Wealthy on 610 WTVN. You're listening to Managing to Be Wealthy with fee-only financial planners of Johnny, Sestina, and Company. If you're looking for the latest stock tip or how to time the market, you've come to the wrong place. If you want help navigating all the moving pieces of what makes a financial plan successful, tune in and take notes. Welcome back to Managing to Be Wealthy. Final segment for the night. We're coming in on the home stretch, uh, talking about building generational wealth. All right. And last time I got the I got the closing words, Tony. I feel like we agree on this, but maybe you get a little bit more fired up than me. So I'd said that, you know, maybe if you're super nervous about your kids not going to college, you don't want to lock up a bunch of money in a 529, maybe lowball it. Agree, disagree, hit me with your thoughts. I think, again, unless, well, there's no one left. In my mind, my opinion, most people, young people are going to choose some way to better themselves, whether that's a traditional four-year school, the four-year technical college, whether it's going to the police academy, there's a lot of things that you can pay for out of these 529s. And in this climate of rising taxes and where most middle-class families can't get financial aid because they make too much money, a 529 plan is how you create your own financial aid. You know, you invest $10, it becomes $20. You don't have to pay any taxes on that $20. I'm oversimplifying this example, but you know, you turned your 10 into 20 and you get to use it for college with no penalties. It's all good. To me, that's the benefit of if I'm just middle class, I say just, but if like most people, you know, you have enough money to try to think about college, but not enough that it's just easy without thinking about it, you're not going to probably get financial aid. That's why I think these plans are so important, Spencer. No, I'm with you. And I think another thing, too, just to say it out loud, uh, with the penalties that people get hung up on, you're never going to be penalized on money you put in, right, the principal. So always remember that, too, right? You're putting in money, investing it to grow. If you ever need to take it out, it's not like you're going to lose 10% of your initial contributions. It's only on the earnings, and that's, to your point, Tony, if they just flat out don't decide to do a trade school or private school or college, you name it. So I agree with you. Oh, good. I'm glad. That makes me feel good. Yeah. It's a good <laughs> show when you agree with me. Yeah, it'd get awkward if we disagreed. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that's the 529s. That's the UGMAs and UPMAs that are essentially uh, custodial brokerage accounts for your kids. The other one that I think a lot of people forget about are custodial Roth IRAs. Now, the one caveat with any IRA, whether it's your own or your child's, is you have to have some sort of earned income. You can't just necessarily get an allowance. You can't get an allowance. You can't get gifts from the grandparents and just shuffle that in to the custodial Roth. Okay, but it is a good tool if you have a you know a child that's doing some sort of odd job or working, whether it's you know delivering newspapers, babysitting, you name it. That could be a good tool for them to start putting money into a Roth IRA when they're you know ten, twelve years old. That could presumably grow tax free for seventy, eighty years. Who knows with modern medicine. Uh, do you do that with a lot of people, Tony? <laughs> oh, it's a, it, it is. Yes. Yes is the direct answer, Spencer. Mm-hmm. And you make me smile because <laughs> this is generational wealth. 
this is using the system the right way. And I think it really encourages the great behaviors that we've been talking about so that people are ready when they take over the family's wealth or when they become the steward of wealth here. Because part of these custodial Roths, what you said was there's a work requirement. Now, part of that is it doesn't mean the child who goes and does all this great work and they made $1,000 over the summer, you don't have to take their 1000 necessarily and say, let's put that in the account. Maybe they take their 1000 and use it, but now they have a 1000 of earned income. That's the key. Mm-hmm. And that earned income is where we think great habits come from. You know, I wish I'd been setting this thing up when I worked at the pizza house in Columbus here many years ago because that'd be that would have been really fun. Yeah, well, and I will say this: like, I generally shy away from preaching, you know, too much on financial habits. But I will say this: I guarantee you, if I was a kid um, looking at my parents' accounts that they showed me, maybe I'd be falling asleep a little bit. But if I knew it was my in my account, you know, five thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars in my name. Personally, I feel a lot more inclined to want to have more ownership of the account, know how it's run, the nuances. So to your point, Tony, I think that's a great way to not only set them off for success with you know long-term uh, investment growth tax-free, but also hopefully gives them some ownership or entitled, entitles don't, them to be more hands-on with their own money. Well, I'll tell you, Spencer, I would credit my grandmother. I Mm -hmm. think that's why I'm here today and why I'm on the show today and why I do what I do, because at 15, this was something she did with me as I talked about it. And way back when working at the pizza house and sweating and suffering and all that good stuff, Mm -hmm. she decided to help educate me on investments and how to do things. And we looked at a few different companies back then, and that really opened the door to me. And again, I had some experience that they just don't teach you in school. And that's the fun part of some of this generational wealth stuff, too, is your young people will be going to school teaching their peers because they're going to know things that maybe the teacher doesn't even know. Yeah, and even then, like I said, I had an assignment in high school where I had to do something like that with picking a stock. But once again, it wasn't my money. It was just uh, it was an assignment I was trying to get an A on. So (laughs) I won't say that necessarily. It feels a little different, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It it stings a little bit less when when you're wrong. so. (laughs) (laughs) So, But anyway, so a lot of tools out there. I'm sure it probably prompts some questions, so just do some digging and and reach out to someone if you need some assistance. But last one, Tony, got about three minutes left here before we have to wrap up. Uh, Oh, no. Yeah, flying by. Business owners. So what about passing businesses that you you put your blood, sweat, and tears into to the next generation? You think about that as building generational wealth? Definitely, Mm -hmm. 100%. And the key is you have to think about it. I mean, Spencer, I know that just hearing that, I smile and I think of a few different people where you mention something like that and they just kind of shut down. They get a little defensive. It's not something they want to talk about now. And I understand it because you know where each child might be at. You know who might have interest in the business, who might have interest in the money from the business, Who's really the best one to run the business? Mm-hmm. Those may all be different people in different uh, family scenarios, and it may not be all the children equally. And this generational wealth stuff is where we can help by t- tackling things early on. Maybe you do have multiple children, and you have this business that's been in the family for years and years, and two out of three have no interest in it whatsoever. But one out of three does. And they're the ones who have been there with you every day that since high school or college. You know, certainly that's the one that you'd feel comfortable. 
for your employees, for your customers. That's the one that should take over because they have the experience. But if you just can't have the discussion with the other two about why you're going to give that business or why you're going to sell that business or transition to the one child, you just keep ducking your head in the sand, ducking your head in the sand, and all of a sudden those other two children outweigh the one with experience at your passing, and now all bad things seem to happen. And this is where I've seen it too many times, and I just I can't stop talking about it because if you do it right, you can avoid that mess. Yeah, and it's a good tool along the way too, right? Like I know a lot of people who will say that, you know, my kids are in extracurriculars, they have a huge busy school schedule as it is, they don't have time to work necessarily. I mean, if you're a business owner, there's some creative ways that you can start looking at tax planning opportunities, right? There is some ways for them to earn some earned income, maybe put that into the custodial Roth and things like that. So whether it's when you're still you know, pulling the reins on the business, there's some great generational wealth building opportunity. And then to your point, Tony, even further down the line, when maybe you want to transition away from all of that, there's that other aspect of, of building that generational wealth as well. Right. When hopefully you get to the point where the dollars and cents aren't everything. The business has been successful. There's ample resources there for many generations of the family. Well, then it really does come back to why are we doing this? You know, what are our values? What's our mission statement? And I've seen it where if, with generational wealth, one of the keys when I see it done well in over 100 plus years, there's usually a value statement attached to this. There's usually something where we as the family, whatever our last name is, we're going to work towards this bigger goal. It's almost like a family crest almost, but it's a family goal sheet almost of here's what we believe in. And when you can pass that along across generations, then I think this generational wealth becomes a little easier too. Couldn't agree more. So show has gone by. Take advantage of your own wealth and your own net worth, and, and that'll help you with the next generation and building theirs. Please come back for the next show. You've listened to Managing to Be Wealthy on 610 WTVN.